Are you tired of putting yourself last? Of taking care of everybody else's needs and powering through to meet the next set of impossible standards? In our fast-paced society, we lose touch with our intrinsic worth, with the ability to value ourselves for who we are right now. Instead of living life exhausted, frustrated, and disconnected from your authentic self, maybe it's time to put yourself back in the life you've worked so hard to create. Join radio host and life choreographer Laura Cheadle and learn how to build your dreams and live your sparkle using the five steps of flaunt. Find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. Hello, welcome to Flaunt, Build Your Dreams and Live Your Sparkle. I'm Laura Cheadle, and today we are going to talk about money. Now, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, 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 manifesting in abundance, blah, 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 blah. But that's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the practical aspects of money. Money is a thing that we either have or we don't have. And no matter how much we have or how little we have or whether we have debt or student loans or whatever, money is a reality in our life. It's something that we have to deal with whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not. And as a woman, I feel like I was not necessarily raised to believe that money was something that was in my realm. My dad was an accountant. He took care of the money. I felt like at my age, and I'm, I'm just turned 50, but I felt like I was kind of told, yeah, 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 that's a man's role. You can take care of things and you, you can get a job and you can be a lawyer. I was a lawyer, but I still was not told money is your responsibility. So that's why for today's show, I'm bringing on an incredible guest. I'm bringing on Manisha Takor, and she is a woman (laughs) who deals with money, not only deals with money, she has spent her entire life learning about money, helping other women learn about money. She's got an amazing educational background, and I'll let her tell some of her background to you guys too, because it's just amazing. And today, we are going to dish on all things financial. So welcome to the show, Manisha. It's such an honor to have you here. Oh, Laura, I'm so excited to be here. And it's, it's interesting because I've, uh, we're, all, we're essentially the same age. I turned 49 this year. And it's fascinating to me how many women I meet of all ages who say exactly what you said um, about the way in which they were socialized, whether it was by family or society, to, to think or not think about money and, and their relationship and responsibility with it and empowerment with it. It's crazy, isn't it? Because same thing, I was raised to believe you can do whatever you want. And I believed that. And I became a, an attorney, which in theory, gives you good money, but not once, not ever did anybody say, and what are you going to do with that money once you get it? Right, right. Crazy. Yeah. I don't know um, whether, because one of the things that I I always like to highlight is that um, men oftentimes um, 
have a higher comfort level with money and, and talk about money with more confidence. But interestingly enough, their knowledge level is not so different than ours. Um, and so I, I think what's happening is that men are socialized from a young age to talk about business and money as part of their chit chat. And it starts as early as college. And I think it's because it's at that time, guys are starting to, to step into adulthood. Uh, you, you know, they, they're, they're starting down a breadwinner path. And so they're talking about this with each other. Um, and I am a bra burning feminist. So when I say this, I mean, no disrespect to anybody who's listening, but us ladies, that's not what we're sitting around talking about. No, true. That's a really good point. And I just like that you use the phrase breadwinner because even when a woman makes money, oftentimes we don't refer to ourselves as, oh, I am the breadwinner of my family. So you're right. That's not, even if we are, we don't talk about it. Well, and Laura, this is huge because never in history have as many women been um, primary and co-breadwinners as we have today. And that primary number just keeps growing and growing and growing. And um, it is shocking to me. Um, in a really good way, of, of how many households in the U.S. are dependent primarily on the, the um, female's income. And yet we haven't societally really helped women know how to own this. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, my friend, Pranush Tarabi, who people may know uh, um, from seeing her on the Today Show um, or uh, – many other different uh, media outlets has written a wonderful book on this called when she makes more. And that is literally the first book I have ever seen about how to deal with money when you make more than your spouse as a woman. And um, I think we're only going to hear more about it. I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And it's interesting because we're, we're the same age. So perhaps you have a similar experience in the last 10 years. I have had a lot of friends, acquaintances, coworkers who have kind of made the shift going back into the workforce who maybe took some time off to raise families and now they're going back or they have experienced a divorce and now they're dealing with their own financials. And I find it interesting that that is the time of life, maybe late thirties, early forties. The women are starting to look at money in the same way that you said boys going off to college start looking at money. It, it, it seems like it's the same transition, but it happens much later for us if indeed it does happen. You know, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about what it is that triggers women to kind of step into that empower, empowered position around their money. But sad to say, it, it, it um, often is, I mean, I got divorced, um, became out of the blue and just hit me like a, you know, tsunami when it happened. Um, and I, I never expected to get divorced. And um, I, so I'm particularly sensitive to divorce and becoming widowed because it is, so many people don't realize men die married, women die single. Look at the obituaries. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> you will see men are all, almost always survived by their wives. And um, women, because we live longer, are almost never survived by, by um, spouses. So whether it's divorce or it's widowhood or it's stepping back into the workforce, it's these kinds of transitions that 
often serve as the big wake up call. And the one bummer about that is there are a lot of emotions going on with all three of those major life changes. And so it's a lot to be processing those just alone without also trying to figure out the money piece. No kidding. Because I don't know if you find this, but I find money to be emotional. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. If you're processing empty nesting, divorcing, whatever, to add another layer of, oh my gosh, and now I have to figure out the money, that feels overwhelming to me. Well, and you know, they call it personal finance, not everybody's finance, or it's black and white finance. Like it's highly personal. And <laughs> um, money, I've discovered money is never about money for men or women. Um, but for us women in particular, I find that money is safety, it's security, um, it's flexibility, it gives us voices, it gives us choices. Um, and then there's all that baggage that we carry from the way we were um, brought up. So there's a, um, a kind of family constellation issues, if, if you will. Um, and there's just a lot around it. And then gender differences, like how do you deal, you know, do you, is it demasculating if you become interested when you're in a partnership? And uh, there's just so many different emotions that come up personally and contextually around, around money. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I like how you talked about safety and choices because it's interesting in the line of work that I do now, just with some of the general female empowerment, women are often talking about the things that they want, but that they don't want to get sucked into money and they don't want to be seen as money grubbing and they don't want to be seen as selfish, but they want to do things and they want the freedom and flexibility to do those things. And those things require money. And it seems like there's that mental dichotomy too. How can I be a nice girl? How can I be a kind woman and still charge you? <laughs> and I stop and I think about that. Like where or when have you ever heard a man express reservation or embarrassment about wanting to earn money? Like they just, they own that. And I, I completely agree. I mean, I see it all over the place where we, um, are apologetic or embarrassed about wanting to step into that. And um, I mean, I think there are a lot of um, societal uh, reasons around that. But when I think about like, okay, well, what do we do? Because that's just the situation. What you described is total yeah. reality. And I think the thing is to remember that money gives women voices and choices. And the studies are really clear. When women um, step into a wide variety of realms, whether it's, you know, uh, leadership in government, in um, corporations, in a community, um, we make significant differences. And um, so having the voice and the choice is not something that we should be ashamed about. We should be excited to go get that. I like that shift. You're right. It is exciting. It's empowering. It's, it's finally, we have worked long and hard for this and we deserve it. And we should have that. Now, I want to step back a little bit and find out a bit about you. How did you first come to be interested in money? Because, you know, we're, we're talking that it's, it's, societal, it's a societal thing and that we have not necessarily been conditioned to own our money story. What got you interested in money and finances in the first place? 
You know, I, Laura, I just had the most, um, and I have the most unbelievable parents. My dad sat me down when I was around 11 and is like indelibly burned into my brain. Um, my dad, uh, is retired now, but he worked in finance, had his MBA, his CPA. So he's very comfortable with money. And he sat me down and he showed me how to use this specialized financial calculator um, to calculate how much money I would have when I reach retirement age if I saved my baby and babysitting and lawn mowing money and invested it. And when I saw those numbers, I was like, I want that. <laughs> um, and my mom is, um, she was like one of the original uh, hippie feminists. And she used to um, have me play with gender neutral toys and, and read me books like Free to Be You and Me. And, and so my mom always encouraged that voice and choice um, mentality as well. So I think it was this combination of when, when my dad showed me the money and I said like, I want that. And no one said, Oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't say that. That's not a nice thing to say about money. Um, and my mom saying, you know, right on, that's going to give you the opportunity to live where you want to live, how you want to live with who you want to live. Yeah. And so I got that mindset early on. And then there was continued education. Um, as I was growing up, uh, my dad, treats my brother and I exactly like when it comes to talking to both of us about money and that's happened throughout my growing up. And so, um, and I meet very, very few people who had that kind of experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, even though my father was a CPA, I recall very few conversations about money. He never directly said you can't or you shouldn't. However, there was this Gosh, I'm not even sure of the exact word, specialness around money, seriousness around money, that made me dread it. If he called me into his office and he had his calculator out there and I was like, oh, busted. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to go there. I don't want to learn it because it just seemed heavy and draining and serious. And as I have grown up, run my own business paid my own you know bills i've learned money doesn't really have to be draining that way it just it's neutral it's can be exciting it can be kind of boring sometimes but it doesn't have to be heavy and draining and serious you know one of the um most beautiful ways i've heard money be discussed is from a woman named vicky robin she wrote a book um, that came out in 1992 and was like an instant bestseller because uh, Oprah saw it. And she went on Oprah and that was the day where like, that was it. You were on Oprah. Like the whole world knew about you. And um, yeah. the book was just re-released um, last year to much fanfare. And um, so it's really been on my mind lately and it's called your money or your life. And Ooh. in it, she basically makes the point that for most of us, money comes into our lives because we work for it or someone near and dear to us has worked for it. So money we get in exchange for giving our life's energy to, to work. And so when we're spending money, what we're spending is our life's energy. And the process of paying attention to our money is, is really about honoring our life's energy, trying to squeeze the maximum amount of joy out of that as we can. And when you shift to thinking about it like that, I find, um, energetically 
it just makes me feel, um, I don't even want to, neutral, I think might be the best way. Like it, it demystifies the money somehow and it makes it seem like, well, yeah, this is, this is a result of my life's energy and I want to be mindful and conscious about what I do with it. I like that. That's a great perspective because you're right. It, 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 it just makes sense and it demystifies it. Money just feels like the physical representation of this energetic thing that we can't see. So great. (laughs) Give it a representation and deal with it. I like that. I'm going to have to pick up that book. Now going back to you, you were raised in this environment where you were taught about money. You were shown you could do anything. You received your education. You received quite a bit of education. How I'd like you to talk about that, but I'd also like to talk about how that was with the other women in your programs, both in terms of the numbers of women and in terms of how they were embracing their money story through those types of programs. You know, it's really interesting, Laura. So I, um, and I'm glad you asked that question that way because to me, the really exciting part is um, thinking about the differences that I saw. So educationally, I did my undergrad at Wellesley College, which is one of the, the seven sisters, and it's an all-women's college still today. It's where Hillary Clinton went to school and Madeleine Albright went to school and um, a number of CEOs of large corporations. Um, and I also spent, when I was at Wellesley, my junior year abroad at Oxford, and then I have my MBA from Harvard Business School. And my experiences around, so I've had three very different environments to observe women with money. So at Wellesley, I noticed this strong sense of empowerment around money. Um, And it wasn't um, overt. It was more like, well, of course, like I'm going to, I've got a great brain. I got here. I'm, this is the profession I want to pursue. I expect to be paid well for it, and I'm not going to apologize for anything. And then I went to Oxford, and part of it is just Brits are so much more reserved than Americans. Yes. So, like, you just don't talk about certain things in in um, in public. So there, it was more. It wasn't as much of a gender a driven issue as it was a societally driven issue. Like, even the men didn't want to talk about it. And then I got to Harvard Business School where all anyone wants to do is talk about money. (laughs) Um, But there are so many fewer women. My class was, I think, 30% women. And that was like one of the highest numbers, um, percentages. And that would have been back in the mid-90s. And so it's we were outnumbered um, dramatically. And I, interestingly, you know, as I look back, I see this... I do not recall conversations around money. I re- I recall conversations around careers and okay. um, work that interested us and ambition um, and getting ahead, but that all seemed to be decoupled from money. Um, whereas um, a lot of the men would talk about their, um, uh, I won't say the full word, the, they, they would call it the FU number and, oh. you know, the, the FU fund and the amount of money that they, 
at which they would be able to say to any employer, like, I'm out of here. Wow. I I didn't hear, um, I had an FU number in my head. um, And I think that was from my upbringing. But I do not recall that kind of conversation with my female peers. And they're crazy smart women. Mm -hmm. Um, We just, that wasn't what we talked about. Interesting. Something that I had noticed in law school, I don't know if you had a similar experience. There were fewer, there were, it was about half and half. There were, the numbers were pretty equal, but there were fewer women who were seeking the more high paid types of law. Most women were wanting to be a family law practitioner or a juvenile law or some kind of a public service lawyer where a lot of them, whereas a lot of the men wanted to, you know, lead a corporation, be getting the really high paid jobs. And here we all were at a private law school with student loans (laughs) at this level that we could never all touch. And many of the professions that the women were seeking out would never have been enough to pay off that debt. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And I have two comments on that. Um, first, I, I definitely saw that trend. And the, the way it manifested itself most clearly to me was when a guy in my class would announce that he was going into the nonprofit sector. It was like a shock to people. Yeah. When a woman announced she was going into nonprofit, no one blinked. So there was just this, I mean, you could see it so um, subtly and in that way. Um, and, um, now I will say the flip side was also true when women, um, in my class said, you know, I want to be CEO of a fortune 500 company. Nobody blinked at that either. So I, 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 there wasn't a penalty for, um, owning your power when I was at Harvard business school, but I did notice, um, the eyeballs get raised when men, expressed interest in career paths that weren't extremely lucrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first observation. And then the second one you bring up is huge. This issue of student loan debt and whether or not you're pursuing a career that will enable you to pay it off. Yeah. And I think that is one of the most underdiscussed situations right now. We have more in student loan debt than we do in credit card debt in the U.S. And it's because we're taught education debt is good debt and um, it's not a bad thing to take it on, but no one is saying the other piece, which is you have to think about how you're going to pay it off. And the reality is some career paths and businesses have higher payout structures than other. And it's, um, it's just raw economics. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are certain industries that are never, no matter how phenomenal you are, at executing your job duties going to pay you enough to pay off those student loan debts. And we don't talk about that. No, no. And I fell into that trap a bit as well. The year I went to law school, it was the highest number of admissions and applicants because it was in the middle of the whole LA law frenzy. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. And I graduated and I uh, had a job interview and I was so excited about it. And the guy offered me the job at $12 an hour. And I was like, what? <laughs> With no overtime. And I said, I can't live. I was in California at the time. And I said, I can't live on $12 an hour with no overtime capped at that. And he said, you walk out of my office 
five other people are going to take that job. It, um, it, it blows my mind that, um, we are allowed to take out so much money in student loans without any kind of safeguard or education or emphasis or discussion around the implications of that. Um, And what it does when you're in a situation like that, where you may feel like, oh my God, well then I'm going to have to take $12 an hour and work for this jerk because um, I have these student loans. I don't have a choice. And um, that's what I just feel like the more people can, um, can talk about it. And I have a rule of thumb I use, which is, it's very wordy. So I'll say it first and then I'll explain it, which is okay. don't, don't take out more in student loans than you think you will earn on average over your first 10 years out of school, whether that's undergrad or grad school. Um, so that doesn't mean um, what you earn in year one or what you earn in year 10. It's the average over that time period. And I do it that way because, you know, doctors, for example, you start off making nothing when you're in residency um, and then things can skyrocket from there. Um, but the, the point is, if you take out more in loans than you expect to earn on average in your first 10 years, the odds of you being able to pay that off in any reasonable amount of time are slim to none because you know, even if you set aside 10% of your income a year to pay that off with interest, you're not going to pay that off for 15 plus years. And if it's private loans, it's going to be closer to 20 years. Um, and that's if every year 10% of your income is going. And so if you take out more in loans than what you're earning, um, you know, the math doesn't work if you want to save for other things and have enough around for um, fun things. Yeah. And, you know, this is a uniquely women's issue, I believe, as well. In my case, and things actually worked out, I did take out loans for law school. I was able to pay, do my undergrad, fine. I had law school loans. I practiced for 10 years. And then guess what? I wanted to be a mommy. I wanted to stay home with my kids like nobody's business. And wow, that derails your career. And I sure didn't want to say, I can't stay home because I have student loans. And you know, it worked out for me, but there's a lot of people that have those same desires and they can't. And you talk about choices and voices, suddenly a choice is being taken away from you that maybe you didn't anticipate because I too had this feminist you know, upbringing that you can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan and be the mommy and do this and, and, and. Yes, you can, but maybe that's not what you want to do. Maybe you want to be a mom for a while. Well, and what I wish, um, and I'm so glad you're, you're talking about this, Laura, because women can have that choice. It, it just requires that in your pre-motherhood years that you save even more um, and um, you save a, a higher percentage and you make sure you're not just saving the money, but you're also investing it. So what happens is the average woman spends 11 more years out of the paid workforce than the average man and, and we do it because we're taking care of kids and or elderly parents. 
And what we find is if you take two, you know, Jack and Jill, and they start off in the same job, right out of the gate, odds are high that Jack is getting paid more than Jill. Um, and if you assume they both save 10% of their income and they both get 6% returns on their investments after inflation, um, so that's a real growth in, in those dollars, um, and you fast forward to retirement, um, but Jill has taken 11 years out mid-career, usually somewhere in the mid-30s to um, early to mid-30s. Um, Jill ends up with half the retirement money um, as Jack as a result of taking those 11 years off. And that assumes, and this is Herculean, that when she decides to go back to work, she's able to get a job at the exact same salary that she left work at. And so the way we help women is by, by spreading the word to each other that we can have those choices, but we have to prepare for them by saving more and investing wisely um, prior to our career breaks. I love that. Um, I love that you talked about sharing that information because it's very easy to fall into the false way of thinking, the false belief that it's only a few years out of the workforce. It won't matter. Compound interest, it does matter. Yeah, that's huge. It's stunning, isn't it, Laura? I mean, yes. it is absolutely stunning. Um, there was a, um, there are three headwinds that women face. We still earn less on the male dollar. And, and depending on what... Um, study and, and, and what sets of calculations are exactly how it's being calculated. Women collectively earn 77 to 82 cents on the male dollar. And then you start breaking it out. And if you are um, African-American, if you are Latina, I mean, those numbers drop. Yeah. They're horrible. And um, so we earn less. We spend fewer years in the paid workforce and yet we live longer. And when you stir all that up, we have a lot of headwinds. And so if we can spread the word about getting started out of the gate as, as fast and confidently as we can with our finances, that's what gives us the opportunity to offset those headwinds. And it stinks that we have those headwinds. It, it does. And I, I hope that the more vocal um, women and men are, we are going to eventually change those headwinds. But for now, they're here. And planning in advance is what enables us to have voices and choices and, um, and in, enjoy our lives. Yeah. And wouldn't that be nice for girls to know that in high school, to start having that message coming in that even though right now you might not be thinking about motherhood, you might not be thinking about caring for your elderly parents, those things might be on the horizon for you. And even though you think you might want to work and that you can balance full-time working and full-time motherhood, it's hard. It's harder than you think. And prepare now. Give yourself some options. And then if you don't end up taking them, woohoo, you have even more money. It's so true. It's so true. I just joined the board of the National Endowment for Financial Education. And one of the things that we're trying to do is get financial literacy into as many high schools and colleges as we can. And the, the barrier really is that education still is um, determined 
so much at the state level and then also at a local level. And so it's very hard to kind of just put in a, a nationwide program or mandate, but I, I'm thrilled to see that the trend is moving much more towards that kind of um, education early on. And I'm also starting to notice more and more employers offering financial well-being workshops or seminars as part of their employee benefit packages. Oh, nice. So, um, that's been really interesting to me. That's really been a trend only in the last three, five years. Um, and it's really starting to pick up. Um, so if your firm offers that, by all means, take advantage of that education. Um, it's, it's phenomenal. The, it, it's an investment that uh, will for sure pay off. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm thinking some of the listeners out there might be thinking, okay, it's a little bit too late for me, <laughs> but I've got daughters. I've got nieces. I've got young women in my life who I'd like to share this information with, who I'd like to kind of, you know, get that information in. Where can they go? What kinds of information can they share with the younger women or the girls in their life to help educate them? So, um, and I'm, I'm saying this in the, without an ounce of, um, of, uh, self promotion. I'm saying this from, uh, a, a place of a incredibly deep desire to help. Um, my best girlfriend and I from business school wrote, oh gosh, 10 years ago now. And it's been, it's gone, been updated a book called on my own two feet, a modern girl's guide to personal finance. And if I do nothing else for the remainder of my life, that will be one of my proudest achievements because Sharon and I, my, my co-author, we're now getting emails and, and like it's, it's starting to become a flood of people who said, I was given your book. I did not want to read it, but the book was short um, and there were no multisyllabic words and you guys didn't use <laughs> a bunch of jargon and you talked to me like I was a smart person, but in plain English so I could understand it. And I actually did what you said in the book and it has completely changed my life. And so um, I would encourage people to gift the young women in their life on my own two feet. Um, we deliberately asked that it not come out in paper, uh, hardcover because we wanted it to be as inexpensive as possible. So it's completely accessible. So it's less than $12. And um, in particular, the middle section B is on investing. And I literally think that's the best 60 pages of work I've ever produced in my entire life. And oh, wow. you, read, you read that and you will know more than 95% of Americans about how to invest your money. So I think that's the single most important thing um, that I would recommend. Um, because one of the hard things about personal finance is there's all the information is out there. It, it's all everything you need in order to craft a financially stable um, life for yourself is out there, but it's hidden amongst all this noise. And so trying to figure out what to pay attention to, that's the really hard part. And so um, On My Own Two Feet has called away and highlighted just the stuff that you really need to know. I like the way that you said that. That all the information is out there. It's just hard to know what to count on, what to rely on, what's real. Um, I'm also thinking I'm the mom of two young men. They're 
recently not teenagers anymore. <laughs> but I'm thinking that's information that I would also like to gift them. Yes, you focus on women. Yes, that's a big push. But you are correct. When I think about some of the information that they have received when they come home with stories and you go, yeah, no. <laughs> right. That's... It's so, well, first of all, um, the first edition actually had um, Lynn Schur, um, who uh, has retired now, but she was a big anchor on um, 60 Minutes for years. Um, uh, and she also went to Wellesley. Um, and she said, if I were a modern boy, I'd put a wig on and read this book too. Um, so the, 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 one of the things is people often ask me, you, know, you focus on personal finance for women. What specifically is different about money for women than men. And the honest truth is the biggest difference is that we have those headwinds. And so we need to start on the right foot right out of the gate. We have less wiggle room to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, if the young men in your life refuse to read a book that has um, two sets of legs that end in high heels um, on it, uh, 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 another wonderful book, a friend of mine, Ramit Sethi, has written, um, we wrote it almost at the same time, um, and his book is called I Will Teach You to Be Rich, and we discuss the same things, um, okay. but in that book, there's a guy on the cover, so um, either go. one of those would be great resources. <laughs> good to know, very good to know. So you are focusing on women mostly, but what are the kinds of things that you do with women? Who reaches out to you? Who, who, who is your client? And I want listeners to understand, like, if they're thinking, oh, I'd like to reach out to somebody, are they just calling up their local financial planner? Are they calling an accountant? Are they calling? I'm thinking some people might not even know who to call. Who to call? Yeah. So that's a huge loaded question. We literally could spend the rest of our chat talking about that. So um, I'm just going to cut right to the, the, the chase and say, um, you want to only work with a financial professional who operates as a fiduciary. That means they have a legal obligation to put your interest ahead of theirs and their firm. And you might be saying, well, don't all financial professionals have to do that? And the answer is no. And a huge percentage of financial advisors operate under the suitability standard, which legally en enables them to put the interest of their firm and themselves ahead of you. So long as what they're offering you is quote suitable. Um, and uh, there's a wide range um, of, of flexibility around that definition suitable. So how do you find out? You ask the person, do you operate under fiduciary or suitability standard? They have to answer you honestly. Um, and but they don't have to disclose it if you don't ask. Um, so oh. that's the, the first thing. Um, the second thing is that increasingly there are more options. It used to be in the old world that you had to have to access um, quote unquote, high quality investment advice from a fiduciary, you needed to have at least a million dollars in assets under management. And I've spent my career working for firms that manage money for high net worth individuals, a million to, to $25 million has typically been um, the group of clients that I've worked with. And so I've been so passionate about financial education and literacy because I'm like, okay, what about the other 99%? Like everyone needs help. Um, 
the increasingly technology is enabling firms to help people at lower and lower levels of assets um, in a way that helps the individual and is still profitable to the firm because they're able to use technology and do video chats with the clients instead of flying out to meet them in person. So the, the firm I work for, Brighton Jones, for example, we historically have had a million dollar minimum, but now um, we offer a wonderful service and, you know, for $1,500, we'll do a financial plan for you. And for $1,200 a year, we'll manage your money. And we'll give you all kinds of other financial advice as well as a fiduciary. You know, how much car can I afford? How much home can I afford? Should I consolidate my student loans? How much should I be saving in my 529 for my kids? Which 401k option should I select? So, and we do that because of technology. And, you know, I'm biased. I, I work for Brighton Jones, so I think we're the best. But that's right. increasingly you're starting to see those kind of opportunities where I still see a huge gap is when you have no assets to manage. Um, so if you are in, like you're, you're in debt, you, you have nothing to go to an advisor with, you need help getting out of the hole you're in. The industry's done a stinky job of helping people in that situation, and that's a huge number of people. So I um, sit on the advisory board of a group, a nonprofit called Savvy Ladies, and um, if people go to SavvyLadies.org, one of the things that Savvy Ladies has started doing is matching up um, pro bono um, women in need of financial guidance with a certified financial planner who volunteers her or his time to help them. And it's a six-month um, uh, relationship. And so it's, it's one of the few places that I can send people who are in really tough financial pickles such that the traditional industry where the model is you're charged on the assets you manage that are being managed and you get advice on a bunch of other things along with it, um, it can now get help um, when, you're, when you're struggling. Okay. I, and I'm just, I'm recapping this for the listeners. <laughs> so, so I'm just, it, hopefully yeah, no, <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you have or you don't have. There are people out there who are fiduciaries who are legally bound to help you and to help you figure out what is in your best interest. And if you're just getting started um, as well, and you know some of the things I've described, you don't feel like you need the uh, pro bono um, help, but you're just getting going, and you just need some basic help figuring out um, how much you should be saving and investing, um, and how to pick your investment options in your employer retirement plan. Um, Sally Krawcheck, who used to be the chief financial officer at Citigroup. Um, has started a wonderful firm called Elevest, E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T. And it's completely focused on women, not because the way you invest as a woman is any different than the way you invest as a man, but because after 30 years working in Wall Street, she's observed that um, women are not always given the respect that we deserve when being talked to about our money. And she wanted a place that was all about empowering women. And so that's a wonderful place. And you can start investing with them with as little as like $50 a month that you're starting to put away. And so it's a great place to, um, to start out. 
um, and they have a newsletter. They have wonderful marketing. The newsletter is called What the L, um, E L L E, and it's uh, the information in there is fabulous. Good. That's good to know because I'm thinking something like that for the women who might have had bam that divorce come, who might have kids out of the house now and they're returning to the workforce. They might feel like, wow, even though I might have known something 20 years ago, a lot's changed and I need an update. <laughs> well, and the other thing I want to mention about getting financial advice is price matters. So every incremental 1% that you pay in fees to an advisor um, or, in a, or in the embedded fees in the investments the advisor makes for you, over a 30-year period, every incremental 1% eats up 20% of your portfolio. So a lot of people think the key to doing really well in investing is finding the next hot stock. It's not. Um, I recommend that people do indexing. It's low cost. It's it's the financial version of eating a, or drinking a green smoothie instead of trying to pick all of your individual green vegetables. Um, it's extremely low cost. And um, when you talk to an individual advisor, what you always want to ask after, are you a fiduciary? And if they don't say yes, you do not want to talk to them further. You okay. want to ask you know, in a typical client portfolio, what would all in fees look like? And you have to use the word all in because then they will tell you, it will, they will incorporate the fee you pay to them plus the fee that is embedded in the investments. And this is why I like indexing the green smoothie version because those fees mm -hmm. tend to be around one tenth or two tenths of a percent. Um, other investments that are typically recommended can have fees of one and a half to 2%. So even though the advisory fee tends to be about 1% across the board, it's the, what kicks you in the tushy is that extra embedded fee in the investments. And if you just ask the advisor, what's your fee, um, they'll tell you their fee, but you want the all in fee. And the answer is you want your all in fee to be less than one and a half percent. Okay. I am writing this down because I'm going to put this in my show notes. Um, the two things ask, do you operate under a fiduciary or a suitability standard? And then ask what the all in fees are and you want them to be less than one and a half percent. Correct. Perfect. Because that way, if listeners can walk away with nothing else, or if they're driving and they're like, yeah. I can't remember all of this, at least those two things are in the show notes. Ladies, listeners, everybody read the show notes. Those two important pieces will be there. Do you have any other nuggets of wisdom that you would like me to put in the show notes on that? Um, I think the other thing I just really want women to know is that there are two styles of investing. One is called active and one is called passive. And the reason it's so important to know about the difference is that um, studies show passive, which is, I don't like that word because it sounds like you're doing nothing. I prefer the term indexing. Um, nine times out of 10 does better and is always cheaper. Yet, I think what is so intimidating about investing to so many women is the blah, blah, blah that you hear in the financial news, which is always about active investing, which is the style I would say nobody should use. And so just to give a quick analogy, um, I think about investing like diving, driving down a freeway. 
and the people in the left lane driving like crazy nuts, trying to get that incremental advantage on, uh, of the, on the car ahead. Those are like active investors. They're looking for that one stop to, 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 to beat them all. People in the right and middle lanes are going at the speed limit. They have their seatbelt on and they're listening to your podcast, Laura, and um, they're smiling. And what happens when that situation, both cars almost inevitably hit the red light at the same time, but the driver in the left lane has sweaty armpits and a palpitating heart. And the driver in the right lane is calm, cool, and um, collected. And in investing, you do not only do you not need to be in the left lane, I think it's profoundly dangerous to be in the left lane. And so just letting women know, the third question I, I always suggest asking is, do you practice an active investment um, strategy or do you use an indexing investment strategy? And I want the answer to be indexing. So it's the fiduciary, all in fees, and do you use active Versus indexing, what you're trying to figure out, do they drive in the left lane with their investments or do they drive in the right lane with their investments? Fantastic. And you know, also, I think that would be comforting for a lot of women or people to hear who feel a little insecure about money. Like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to buy and sell and day trade and I don't know how to do this. You don't have to. And not only do you not have to, I would tell you after 25 years in the industry that um, if you do that, um, the odds are exceptionally high that you will shoot yourself um, in the foot with a financial Uzi. Um, So not only do you you not have to do that, I actually um, feel it is really in your best interest to not even try and do that. Right. Right. And I'm thinking for people who are thinking money, ah, claws out, I don't know. That relieves my mind. I would think that would relieve their minds too. I know the questions to ask. I know I'm not going to be taken advantage of. And I know it's not as scary as I think. I can be successful. And you know, what I will say, the one thing I noticed between women and men with money, and it's the same thing as women and men looking for jobs. You know, you've seen the studies that say men will apply for jobs when they have like 20% of the, you know, qualifications. Yeah. And women, we won't apply until we have like 110% of the qualifications. And I'm exaggerating there, but we really hold ourselves to a higher standard. And the single biggest thing that I see, I see women being very good savers but then they don't invest the money. And the reason they're not investing the money is because they're waiting until they have perfect understanding and information in order to invest. The problem is, number one, the whole reason you earn more investing in stocks than you do putting your money in a a savings account is because you're taking some risk. And what that means is by definition, you are um, making a decision in the absence of perfect information. That's why you get higher returns in stocks. So you can never be certain. It's an oxymoron when it comes to investing. But history shows us that over the long run, stocks are what help us beat inflation. And um, the most cost-effective way to own them is through index funds. And you don't need to know Um, You don't need to know what the price of gold is or the current interest rates or what the Dow Jones closed at if you invest in index funds. And my favorite way to invest in index funds is through target date retirement funds that are built using index funds. And the way these funds work, they have um, 
boring names like target date 2030 or target date 2050. And those years correspond to the year, um, ideally, that, that's closest to when you'll turn 70. You buy that one fund, and if it's based on index funds, Fidelity has an index retirement fund. They call it a freedom fund, um, but you, you have to ask for the index version. Vanguard is the, the um, very first ones that really um, did this. What happens is over time, your money gets shifted from stocks to bonds so that it gets gradually more conservative the closer you get to retirement. And it takes the decision-making out of your hands. And what, what we found with investors of both genders is that when you automate and you outsource um, your financial decisions in this sort of way by using a target date retirement fund, you make much better decisions because it's, um, again, it's it's an awful lot like um, uh, taking a multivitamin, like you've got everything in there. Um, so you could literally own a target date retirement fund. And when you own that, you will own roughly 5,000 different bonds and pieces of roughly 8,000 different companies. So you're, you're so diversified. You can have just that one investment and you will be wildly diversified. That's brilliant and simple because I love the example that you just gave that we want to know it all. Yeah. That is so true. I think the women that I work with just in making decisions about their life in general, they're all, they all have a tendency to get stuck in the loop of seeking more information, yeah. taking one more online class, talking yeah. to one more person, reading one more book. Just decide already. And what an easy way to decide and to be relatively safe. Because if you're that diverse, even if one thing goes down, everything else is good. Just like that multivitamin. I might not need vitamin A today, but that vitamin D is something I could use. Well, and I know we're, we're almost at time. So I want to leave one other thing for the show notes that I think is Please. absolutely vitally important, which is do not ever invest money in the stock market that you know you need to spend in the next five years. That is how you deal and protect yourself from market volatility. Um, if you know you need to spend it in the next five years, you keep it in cash um, or a money market fund is really, a, we call it a cash equivalent. But it's only your longer term money, your five year out money that you're investing because that gives you the, the odds um, that um, the up and down, inevitable up and down movements of the market are not going to affect your daily life. And um, that's probably the, the, if I had to end with a really strong rule of thumb that people don't hear enough, do not invest money you need to spend in the next five years. Don't take that down payment and put it into the market because you want to earn a little bit more. That's good to know. Good to know. And not to counter that. This is not a counter. This is an and, not a but. <laughs> and even if you're keeping that money because you need to spend it, I'm also hearing you say it doesn't even matter sometimes if you're just investing $50 at a time. Just keep investing. You don't have to wait for this huge stockpile of money to invest. Just a little bit with every paycheck gets you there. Absolutely. Money. And that, and that money is the money that you're setting. I'm, I'm glad you, you phrased that and brought this up, Laura, because um, that's your long-term money. So when I say don't, don't, that's your retirement money. So when I say don't invest money that you need to spend in the next five years, I don't want you to think that you have to 
pay for everything you want in your life before you start saving for retirement. Um, what I mean is don't put money in that you plan to use um, for something in the near term that is clearly earmarked, like a vacation um, or to pay for a wedding or um, down payment on a home or a car. But your retirement money, that $25, $50, $100 a month that you might be socking away, that's your long-term money. You're not going to be spending that until you're in retirement. That's decades away. So um, thank you for that clarification. That was a very powerful and. <laughs> Good. I just have to say, on a personal level, it was so enjoyable and enlightening to speak with you for a variety of reasons. I enjoyed the awareness. I enjoyed the discussion of women, men, how investing is the same. We just have different headwinds, different beliefs, different cultural um, beliefs around that. So thank you for your work, for your service, not only to the women of the world, but to the entire world. Because as half the population, if we are elevating ourselves, we are creating a healthier, happier world for all of us. So thank you very much. Uh, Laura, it's my pleasure. And I'll just tell people, I don't work with people individually anymore, but if you, my website is moneyzen, M-O-N-E-Y-Z-E-N.com. And I have a resources tab there where I'm always updating what I think are the best books, where you can go for different issues to look for financial advice. I put out a monthly newsletter. I'm not selling anything. It is pure information. It's an educational newsletter. Um, and that's the way I, I try and help all of the people that I, I can't, that I, since I don't work with people one-on-one -on -one anymore, um, I, I keep the most useful things that I'm coming across and sharing through the newsletter or on my resources tab. Perfect. And I love that name, Money Zen, because don't we all want to feel zen around money? That, eh, we have enough. It's been managed. We understand it. Money Zen. We all want that feeling of zen. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your insight, for your wisdom, for your clarity, and just for your ability to be out there in the world letting people know that, hey, Money is kind of a cool thing, and we're all in charge of ourselves. We're all in charge of our money. Let's learn, let's discuss, and let's not be afraid. Listeners, I hope you have gotten as much as I have gotten out of this conversation. Please reach out, ask questions. Um, if you've got any questions or comments and you're driving and you can't write it down, reach out to me. I will send you her website name, um, Anisha's email, letters, whatever name, all that stuff that you need. And I will put you in contact. Go to my new website as well, laurachedle.com. Um, scroll down on the very, very bottom. If you sign up for my newsletter, I've got a link for a planner. And I, after today's call, am going to update my planner to have a little financial reminder on the bottom of it. So you will be reminded week at a time, hey, what are you doing to take care of yourself financially? Have a fantastic week. I can't wait to chat with you next week. And as usual, don't forget to flaunt. 
Tune in next time to Flaunt. Build your dreams, live your sparkle with radio host Laura Cheadle every Wednesday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Come release self-judgment, reveal your naked self-worth, and re-choreograph a life filled with joy. Flaunt. Find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. Find out more at LauraCheadle.com. That's L-O-R-A-C-H-E-A-D-L-E.com.